0: Welcome to another episode of the Feminist Survival Project 2020. If you believe being a woman is neither a moral failing nor a medical condition, and you're exhausted and overwhelmed by 2020 but still worry that you're not doing enough, this is the podcast for you. I am Amelia Nagoski. I'm Emily Nagoski. And I'm I'm taking charge this week because I want to point out a barrier to joy that was constructed like intentionally, on purpose by centuries of white men colluding because they didn't want the rabble showing up to their party but their party is our party and i want to show you the secret entrance to the party you want to go to the party i totally want to go to the party can we start with uh (laughs) where this came from the party that i saw on instagram that i thought like i would love to just like stand on the sidelines and watch this party forever yeah 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 so I want to talk about this now because there's been a revival of an old theory that Beethoven was Black, that he had African ancestors somewhere in his recent heritage, rather than like the African ancestors that we all have, like when humanity came out of Africa. Anyway, uh, there were a lot of social media posts of Black folks celebrating Beethoven and feeling a sense of ownership and connectedness to him and his music. And I loved that. So I want to talk about the way that we can feel that same sense of ownership of other old classical composers who we maybe didn't think belonged to us. So I surveyed my Facebook friends uh, who are mostly classical musicians, mostly conductors and singers, for what classical music they found to be most joyful. So I made a joy list on Spotify and we'll put the link in the thing. And uh, because I want our doorway into the party, the secret entrance to the party is intersectionality. So we perceive Beethoven as black and therefore part of a Uh, an oppressed group at some intersection and therefore we can see him as more ours. Well, there are other composers who were not black, but we can definitely see them at their intersections not just as the white male heroes that they're held up to be. Does that make sense? I don't know. Give me an example. Okay. Franz Schubert. Do you know anything about Franz Schubert? German guy? German guy, yeah. He lived in the early 1800s. It's a time when aesthetic philosophy was shifting away from seeking universal ideal, a universal expression, and shifting toward valuing the expression of an individual's experience, like that lone hero ideal, Byron, Batman, brooding, started to shape people's expectation of what an artist should be, what their work is for. That's the heroic ideal that stands between us and our celebration and ownership of classical music. But it turns out that Schubert was not just that. He was basically just another middle-class white boy. He had... Musical skill, landed him some cushy gigs. So why should any of us see ourselves in his work? Well, Schubert lived with chronic illness. Did you know that? Uh, no. No. And not just any chronic illness, syphilis. Almost certainly. We don't know like 100% because obviously it was, it was hushed up intentionally because syphilis was m- even more stigmatized then. Well, than but you can now. see it in people's skeletons. They could totally do tests now and tell for sure. Syphilis is easy to spot in a dead person. They're not gonna exhume Schubert to find out. Test his bow, (laughs) yeah, no. I mean there so there's some possibility also that he not only had a lot of sexual relationships, but also had them with people of a variety of genders, which made it even more important that he hide it. So what this means is that he was very sick for years and simultaneously ashamed of his illness, encouraged to keep it a secret. And like really good for you when you're hiding important things about your life right you grow and blossom as a human being no that's <laughs> you, horrible you, you might was... make some really good art though yeah so he was really sick he lived with chronic illness and stigma and uh, do we maybe know any other people who live with chronic illness and stigma yes lots and lots of people who maybe would feel like schubert was not one of them but look he is one of us so the piece that was recommended as one of the most joyful pieces of music ever written is his great symphony, which he did not write when he was young and healthy. Well, I say young and healthy, but he was never old. He he died when he was like thirty-one. Oh, so yeah, he died when he was like thirty-one. Probably of syphilis. Of probably of syphilis. So yeah. he died and, so, like that. Is it's it's bad. Yeah. It's, um. It was it was real bad. Not a fun. Like way to his know. groin. His groin started to be like yeah. cankerous yeah. and swollen. Mm-hmm. And this went on for several years. And then after that had been going on for several years, he wrote his great symphony. And I assume we're going to insert some of that here. Yeah, let's listen to just a little, a little tiny bit. Here's what it sounds like. <laughs> So that was written by somebody who had lacerating open wounds on his groin. Yeah. Fun. Isn't that amazing? That is actually, that really does enhance my appreciation of that music. I thought that it would. And actually, I'm going to also give Rich a link to a YouTube video of Leonard Bernstein conducting it. Um, Yeah, because I find when my students listen to classical music, it sort of rolls off them like water off a duck. And when they see a human being, especially someone as expressive as Leonard Bernstein, you really it really yeah. helps. It shows them what's in the music and like wears away the impermeable layer and lets the meaning in. Yeah. So yeah. Like, so let me show you, you the body of somebody here. who really understands what's happening here, because you can understand what's exactly. happening in their body, and that helps. Yeah, you can it. see then. It's like seeing dancers as opposed to listening to music. Yeah, you go, oh, yeah. It adds a layer to your perception. Yeah. And you can hear how sweet and playful and joyful it is. So, yeah. Let's talk another um, another one. New, another one? Yeah. yeah. Okay. So Mahler. far we've got you know somebody who wrote Mahler? a thing with separating wounds and I'm already impressed. And I already feel Live more with, connected. With... Okay. That's awesome. That's my intention. <laughs> so here's another one. Mahler. Mahler seems very serious and important, right? Yeah. Mahler I mostly like, know from the Sondheim lyrics. Right. Another so work bit of Mahler, Mahler and one for Mahler. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, because he's, like, so dark and, like, he's in a museum almost, right, Mahler? So we're going to talk about his uh, Resurrection Symphony. And I'm going to start by telling you, Nazis banned Mahler's music, so it has to be good. Yep. Makes you, makes you wonder why the Nazis hated it, you know? And, of course, the answer was that he was Jewish. He was Jewish in Austria, sort of Austria. The geography has all changed, but it was Austria-ish. It was Austro-German Austria uh, culture. Austria at the time. At the time. The late 1800s, early 1900s, which is definitely a terrible time and place to be Jewish. Very dangerous. Like, Not that there's any really safe time or place in history to have been Jewish, um, but this was a particularly bad moment. So he was a Jewish composer and he wrote a symphony about resurrection. He used an example of a mainstream vehicle, um, like the idea of resurrection, which is a Christian idea. And he used that theme to smooth the friction between his outsider status into the Christian mainstream. And also it kind of sneakily says that resurrection, rebirth, renewal, elevation to the spiritual, whatever, like that's not just a Christian thing. Like nudge, nudge, hey, Christians, did you know resurrection isn't just a literal thing, but like also a metaphor that communicates a universal truth about the human condition? Mahler knew. Yeah, when you, he was when you, when you said it was a resurrection yeah i was oh oh written by a jewish person that is not what i usually expect yeah um and he was he needed to do stuff like that because he he was scorned he wasn't he didn't live in poverty he was successful his music got performed but he he did lose gigs because he was jewish because concert venue managers decided that their audience was going to be afraid or disgusted to be in a room with a jew it's terrible he was frustrated by it. And, uh, and so this is a man who needed hope and faith that the shithole world he was living in was not all there was. And living through anti-Semitism antisemitism, he had to make it mean something. So I put a link to the final movement of the Resurrection Symphony, again, conducted by Lenny. And you can see how he connects deeply with what's in the music. Leonard Bernstein, also Jewish, li- was raised in the first half of the 20th century as a Jew in America, which is maybe not as bad as Mahler had it, but for sure he could relate in a really profound way. Not not an awesome um, place and time to be Jewish. No, there there are no safe times and places in history for Jews. There are none. Um, so definitely Bernstein connected this. I just want to tell you what the text says a little bit, this last couple of lines of text. It says, uh, my heart, that what you have suffered. Uh, Was du geschlagen? Geschlagen means um, hit but also like, like strike or beat, but like when you're fighting, but it also means to conquer, to best someone at their contest. Uh, was du geschlagen? What you, what you best. Zu Gott wird es dich tragen. To God will carry you. So that for which you suffer will carry you to God, which is some roomy ass shit right there, right? Right. Yeah. Beat me with your skimming spoon. I can't do this yeah, alone. Yeah, yeah. That for which you suffer will carry you to god and he's actually talking to his own heart but since we all know that separation between individuals in space and time is an illusion made necessary by the limitation of human perception all of us are him and we are his heart he's talking to us he's pointedly saying whether it's true of, of us being christians or not like to nudge christians to remember resurrection belongs to all of us hope belongs to all of us you want to hear in? yeah um, so, this is the to God, to God, that which you have suffered will carry you. Okay. Was du? Geschlagen! Zu Gott. Again, to Gott. Third time, to Gott! SD and carry isn't that amazing yes yeah and the and story does the make time. it more right you know that he's more than just like Like, a bunch of white men in conservatories decided that the rabble don't deserve Mahler. All right. The Academy says that anyone without a formal education isn't capable of understanding the complexity of Mahler's. Like, his music is really complex. It's true. But I don't think you need to understand how it does what it does. You just need to be a human being in the room and maybe have a little context. Did it work? You can see yourself in him? 100%. Okay. Here's one more composer. Who seems very remote from general audiences? Though we audiences. should put a link to this actual video because I can also see myself in the dresses of these two soloists. <laughs> yeah, they're amazing. <laughs> it's, sure. it's pretty great. It's from the it's from the I think the 60s. So they've got like beehive situation going on, and it's a beautiful performance. Yeah. And Lenny is, <sighs> oh god. Okay, let's talk about Rachmaninoff. Mm-hmm. Like pretty rich white dude from Russia, like six feet six inches of straight up cis white male privilege. Do you know anything else about? rachmanov uh i know he moved to america he did not just move to america he fled russia after the 1917 revolution so he had to leave his home he was born and raised in russia he came back from touring as a concert pianist that was his job and uh sorry about lucy communist revolutionaries had like destroyed his house maybe they looted it and, like, took it over for the people, like in Dr. Zhivago. Right. Well, anyway, his house was gone. He came home and, and his house was gone. His life was in physical danger. They were killing people. The revolutionaries were killing people like Rachmaninoff. He was, his life was in danger. He had to flee for his life with his wife and two daughters. Um, he, he never lived in squalor, in a refugee camp, like what's happening several places around the world now. But he was displaced from his home because his life was in danger from political turmoil, like is happening a lot around the world now. And his privilege protected his body from danger and made his flight easier and faster. But he still had emotional pain that was meaningful and important. His identity as a Russian never left him. He was homesick for the rest of his life, homesick for a home he could never go back to because it didn't exist anymore. Mm -hmm. So it's this wound that could never heal. Hiraith is the uh, Welsh word for that feeling. Yeah. A lot of languages have a word for that specific feeling. Yeah. Yeah. Funny that we don't in English Yeah, because we've been conquerors. The English speakers have been the conquerors, not the not the displaced. Oh, That's a good point. Yeah. So um, his first home in America was in a Brooklyn neighborhood. That's like a little Russia. He surrounded himself the rest of his life with Russian friends, Russian food, Russian traditions. He barely learned English and it, he, it took him 20 years to become a U.S. citizen, like right before he died. So in Russia, he wrote a lot of choral and vocal music. When he came to America, he thought Americans weren't going to want to sing in Russian. And like he was not wrong. So he didn't write any more solo uh, vocal or choral music except one piece, a set of Russian folk songs that he had begun before he fled and he finished after he came to America. Now, in the beginning of the 20th century, the big money maker in the recording industry was folk songs from various parts of Europe for immigrants to hear something from home. Does that make sense? You buy that? that Yeah, Ian does that for a living, right? Exactly, exactly. So because music connects us to our roots. For other people, Ian is our brother, Ian, who is, I guess, an ethnomusicologist. He's an ethnomusicologist, yeah. He collects records from the very beginning of when there were records, which are... Yeah, and he focuses on non-English language records, which were a huge business in the early 20th century. But Rachmaninoff didn't need recordings because he could make the music himself, and he did i'm going to play you a snippet of a recording that's not the final version of the you know huge work with chorus and orchestra it's a it's like an early draft for solo voice and piano and he is playing the piano so we know that he approved of this performance it's playful and like a little dirty it's a woman singing about how her husband is coming home and he's gonna be so mad that she was flirting with the hot young guy next door and uh, he's bringing me a whip so like sexy times ahead and you know that she's not afraid of her husband because of two things first another one of the the folk songs in the three set of three Is a song about a woman pleading with her father-in-law to protect her from his son her husband she's afraid of him and it is appropriately mournful and the music in this song is cute and playful and sassy and fun so it's like secretary that movie yeah it's like i was naughty on purpose so that i would get spanked yeah this is gonna be so hot ready okay right that's the voice of a woman who's getting laid tonight yeah right yeah so rachmaninoff white dude yes also refugee from a violent uprising using music as a way to connect to his home to feel whole again and home again for like a second and who can't relate to that right we all use music to connect with our sense of self with our identity with our community so I'm mean, gonna. That uh, struggle belongs to everyone. Devil's advocate. There are mm-hmm. probably people who are thinking, well, he was a refugee, but he's not a refugee like refugees are refugees. Right? Because he didn't suffer bodily, but his heart suffered like fuck. He was... And who the hell are we to say that that doesn't matter? Oh, you nailed that. I wrote my dissertation on this. So yeah. <laughs> so yeah, <laughs> so, yeah I thought this through. <laughs> So, so you, like, recognize, recognize one that, like, no, he's not in a refugee camp living in a tent with no p- protection from infectious disease and things like that. But, right. like, this hollow thing in his heart is the same yeah. hollow thing. We've all had that hole in our heart. And that matters. No matter how safe our bodies are, if our hearts are hollow, that sucks. And we need something to fill it. And you know what does a great job of that? Music. Especially music from our childhood. So he arranged these three folk songs? Yeah. Are you going to play us? And that's one that he, he recorded a performance of him and this Russian folk singer who also lived in California at the time, who he was friends with. the Plovitskaya. So now I want to talk about Beethoven again. OK, which is where we started. That's um, the party that I was watching him being like, I could stand here and watch this joyful celebration all day because it's amazing. Yeah. Let me talk about Beethoven, who he really was, for a hot second. There, There is no chance that Beethoven was more African than any other 19th century German person. Sorry. Is that sad? Is that hard? Should I not? Should I talk about why we know that? I don't know. Are like, does it matter why we know it? Because does it feel like... So where this comes from is I uh, was watching this hashtag, hashtag Beethoven is Black, which is where I saw these amazing videos of Black people dancing and... Beethoven's music played over it whether it was Beethoven's fifth or the ninth Uh, and it was amazing to see this music juxtaposed over that joyous dancing it was glorious yeah and I was like Amelia is this a thing Beethoven black and she was like no No. this is amazing but no No. and then she was like but Beethoven doesn't have to be black in order for Beethoven to fit with this joy there's one other thing I want to say which is that the theory that Beethoven was black and yet succeeded so well and became so famous and so and was so famous in his time um, is not an accurate portrayal of what it was like to be black in Europe at that time. There were black composers in Europe. And they do you, can you name any of them? No, of course not, because they were black and they had so much friction between who they were and who the audience was that they were not able to make their way into the mainstream. And that challenge, that difficulty, is not something Beethoven ever had. And there probably are scholars who uh, are, like, documenting and searching for documents of Black composers in Europe at that time. Oh, yeah. They're well-documented. Okay. They're well... We know their music. We have their music. Does it get performed and recorded as much as Beethoven's? Nope. Because Because he was not Black. Yeah. Mm. I mean there's no way white people would have let him come to such success if there had been any suspicion that he was not white as white can be yeah sorry so basically the moral of the story is white people uh, are too awful for beethoven yeah. to have been black exactly doesn't matter how much of a genius he was if he yeah. had been black he would not have become beethoven Yeah, white audiences. Because white people are worse than you thought. You thought Beethoven could have been black. I think when a white audience attended a performance of a black composer's music, they they saw it as like a sideshow. They expected the music that's that sounded black, whatever that means. Um, And instead of looking for something universally human and reaching deeper than race, white people were not into that when it came to people of other races in the 19th century or indeed in the 20th century, early 21st century. So Beethoven wasn't black, but he was disabled. Okay. People focus on the fact that he was deaf, like, oh my God, he was deaf and still composed music, but he was also deaf when he ate breakfasts. right? He was deaf when he was negotiating contracts. He was deaf when he was introduced to new people. He lived with deafness all day and the world is still very difficult for people with hearing trouble. It's even worse then. And and he was kind of a dick about it, but I mean, like, yeah, isn't it sort of understandable to be kind of a dick when the world around you is designed for people who aren't like you? Yes. No? So Yeah. It's, so the, the compellingness of his story lies in the better known idea that he was a professional musician and a composer who could not hear, and so he made his art in the sensory modality that he gradually lost access to over the course of his life. Yeah. And people focus on the fact that he was doing something with sound while he couldn't perceive sound, but he also had to live his the rest whole of his life. life. Yeah, and yet his last symphony is the Ode to Joy, not his second symphony, not his fifth symphony. I didn't it's the know ninth it was his symphony. Last. How old was he when it's he it's the died? ninth symphony? It's he, his last he lived symphony. To an the ode old age, to Joy. Right? Um, I don't remember. He was he lived at the same time as Schubert. Schubert was born after him and died before him. He was i think he was in his 50s when he died probably of lead poisoning because there was lead in the water which is what also caused his deafness how old Beethoven? 56 56 in his 50s hey i actually knew that <laughs> oh he died of cirrhosis so, so oh yeah yeah they've been trying to figure out what exactly killed beethoven and what made him and deaf not from. all cirrhosis is alcohol no he he was clearly drinking poison in his in his water. I think they did like hair sample testing and found lead in his hair. Oh. Yeah. Was he being poisoned, anyway. or did, was there just lead in his water? No, there was lead in the water because he lived in 1825, <laughs> and there was lead in the water. Like the pipes were made of lead, and it was yeah. leaching into the water. Yeah. Don't worry, there's so. still places in the 21st century America where there's lead in where the there's water. Lead. Exactly, so we can all relate. Hey, that's another thing that yeah. Beethoven has in common with you know oppressed communities. He's had lead in his drinking water, and we can all hear them be like, "That's fucking crazy bullshit." Yeah. So it's after he lived all through all of that that he wrote this. Now I hear Ode to Joy as like the ultimate fuck you to the corrupt politicians and corporations that poisoned Flint. Yeah. Can you imagine the citizens of Flint being like, and now I will write a symphony that is an ode to joy? How How did he not write an ode to anger? I don't know. I mean, I can. I can't imagine that happening. But only because of... I have witnessed that kind of yeah. sort of shocking resilience. I can actually resilience. imagine it too. Yeah. But yes, it is shocking resilience and it's amazing. So I'm going to read you this poem, like the, the first couple of lines from by Friedrich Schiller, uh, which is the, you know, Joy, Freude, Freude, Schöne, Goethe, Funken, Tochter aus Elysium. Joy, thou beauteous, godly lighting, daughter of Elysium. Wir betreten, um, we're entering... Feuer we're entering drunk on fire fire drunk our oh holy one into your holy space your magic binds us together hey joy your magic binds us together what custom we what what we divide by custom you bring together all humanity becomes brothers uh, all men become brothers all humanity become family um wherever Your gentle wings lie. That that didn't sound like a real sentence, did it? Did you get any of that? I'm looking at the German. Say it all at, at once, like it's a thing. Okay. Joy, beauteous, godly light, daughter of Elysium, fire drunk, drunk on your fire, we enter into your sanctuary. Your magic binds us together. Your magic binds together what we divide. All men become brothers where your gentle wings come to rest. Well, all right. Yeah. Fire drunk, we enter your, your, your sanctuary. Your magic binds us together. So the magic of joy binds us together. Lives with disability, died of lead poisoning, probably, maybe. Yeah, yeah that joy binds us together which is why i made a joy playlist because joy binds us together joy binds together what we have made ordinarily we will divide because humans we all become fuck us because we and, and we all become family wherever you are isn't that nice and there's like these hyper elite gatekeepers who have built walls between regular people Not even just people of color and women, but like a lot of people, it's also a class distinction. Built walls between us and that kind of... Between us and this. Connection with joy.
1: Daughter of Elysium.
0: Fire drunk, we enter. Into your sanctuary. Your magic binds together what our tradition divides. All men become brothers where your soft wings come to rest. Now there's a complexity with this one that there hasn't been with the other pieces, which is that this one has become very familiar because it has become, you know, the background music in a commercial. Yeah, it is. it has an extrinsic meaning that is unrelated to its history as just a pure expression of joy coming out of complex circumstances. So maybe we need to, like, not think about Clockwork Orange, because that's for sure not what Beethoven intended, <laughs> that kind of dark irony. Yeah, I'm sure the piece was chosen because about. it was the opposite of that scene. Yes. So my point is, Beethoven was one of us. He was you and he was me. And he's, he's a dead white man. That's, yeah, that's what it is. But he's so much more than that, also. He's a human being who saw the inevitability of the unity of all humanity. And also, through I joy as a pathway. Because he, he is like a, one of the dead white men of Europe in the 19th century. Like anybody can claim this and be like, I'm going to, like, this is mine now. This is, yeah. like, we don't have to worry about cultural appropriation. This is the ultimate in the oh. dominant culture, which everybody is, that is the game that everyone is allowed to play. Nobody's allowed to say you're not allowed to play this game. There are, if, if it were coming from a culture that had historically been oppressed or controlled or that white people had tried to erase, then those are oh, things yeah. that need to be protected from appropriation. Beethoven yeah, does no. not need that. Mahler even does not need that. No. In, like all of this that is, is a party everybody gets to come to. Yeah, this is the big power party, and we are all allowed in. Although the establishment, like the man, would be thrilled if we would all just keep our grubby little mitts off their white boy heroes. Like, how dare we sully their canonical ideals with our peasant feelings and our icky humanity? So, I mean, I'm like, you want to smash it down with and our Exactly. But like, if we take ownership of Beethoven. We have every right to his music, and it's going to piss them off if we acknowledge that. And I think more than just us going ahead and you know idealizing Beethoven more than he already is, I think that this act breaks down barriers between classical music and the audience, which breaks down barriers between classical music and musicians who want to work in the music industry, which is very, very racist and very, very misogynist. And the goal is not to like lift up the white heroes further, You know, we're not giving up on black composers and women composers. We already have white men that all the world should already connect to. No. I'm saying that when we take white heroes out from behind glass, so like as though their whiteness is what matters about them and holds them apart and makes them special, we take them out from behind that partition. They're the dishes for everyday use, not the ones that just sit in the cabinet. Exactly. Everybody can touch them, see themselves in their work. And when we can see ourselves in them, it's harder to perpetuate the myth that they are the only ones who deserve our attention. When we see ourselves in the great white men of history, it's easy to see ourselves becoming the great people of history. Is there an example of one of these dead white guys of oh, that decomposing composers? There's uh-huh. less of the memory, yeah. yeah. You can say uh-huh. what you like to do, 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 see, but there's not but much there's of it left. Do we? Do <laughs> we? <are>. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Is there any one of them uh for whom you could not be like, okay, sure, he was, you know, a successful white dude in europe who probably had all sorts of appalling beliefs but he had chronic disease and pain he lived with disability he was a jew in europe um you want to hear some more quick ones is there anybody you could be like yeah no that guy was just that guy wagner (sighs) yeah wagner i can't defend yeah just so What I want to make clear is you're not saying this is literally like all (laughs) classical music. We can relate to everybody. Everybody has their struggles. Some people are douchebags whose story needs to be told as a warning. Yeah. Yeah. And it kind of doesn't matter how good Wagner was. Like he was, he was Nazi. He was also terrible. He was terrible. Nazis loved him. Therefore, he's bad. That's how we know. Yeah. But I mean, Tchaikovsky suffered from severe depression. Might have been gay. Those two things sometimes are related. He died by suicide in his 50s. His music made the playlist, the joy playlist. Edward Elgar also suffered from severe depression, but he recovered because recovery is possible and hope is real. And he's got a piece on the joy playlist that was nominated multiple times. Elgar? Bach was blind. Handel was blind. Elgar, severe depression. I didn't know Handel was blind. Handel was blind. Bach was blind. Successful and beloved, yes. But they also struggled to live every day in a world designed for people with abilities they didn't have. Benjamin Britten, definitely gay, was in his 50s when Great Britain decriminalized gay sex. So he, he lived was with sort partner, of at the same time life. period as Alan Turing, yes. who yes. oddly, Alan Turing is escaped. more famous now than Benjamin Britten. Well, maybe among your oh, nerds, but my nerds. There was a movie made about him. Yeah. I, I, Benjamin Britten's pretty famous. But the only reason he wasn't punished the way Alan Turing was is um, he had the personal favor of Queen Elizabeth II. His physical safety was dependent on the whims of a monarch in the 20th century. In the 20th century, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, like William Bird—they didn't who was put Catholic, that in the documentary. The they didn't put that in the Netflix series. No, no, that she was ignoring Britain's sexual orientation, sexuality because she liked his music so let's just not talk about it can you play uh can was on the list the the benedictus ben- the oh yeah the sure <speaking> well now i don't have to play it no that was just me making noise to fill the time very sweet the um the piece that made the list was um his pizzicato what's it called it might just be called playful pizzicato oh yeah from the simple symphony yeah playful pizzicato one's pretty famous i've never heard it Uh, it's in the soundtrack to that wes anderson movie that takes place in new england in a campground then i did hear midnight kingdom moonlight kingdom yeah somebody someone someone's yelling it at me right now yeah anyway so it's not that it's everybody it's that it's a lot of people and if there's music people like regardless of whether it feels like it comes from uh their culture if it's part of like the dominant oppressive culture that is free for the taking yeah and if you feel like that music doesn't belong to me that's because you have been explicitly taught to believe that that music doesn't belong to you because how dare you yeah we and have to keep the rabble out of our concert houses so this music isn't for you if you want to piss off the man and smash some fucking patriarchy listen to beethoven take it as your own so beethoven may not actually be black but there is a reason why the video overlapping his music with these black communities dancing in a celebratory way feels, feels right and so true and amazing. Because literally in the Ode to Joy, what he says is that we are all family. We are all one humanity. We are united by joy. So, yeah. In the face of what, what we as humans would separate. Yes. So that's what I wanted to say and why I wanted to take charge this week. So this is our way of trying to help increase everybody's access to every source of joy joy. that uh, they can get their hands on without taking it from somebody else. Yeah. Nobody's taking anything when they take Beethoven's Ninth. You've been told you're not invited to this party, but I'm here to tell you, you are invited to this party. You might have to come through the secret entrance. You might have to just not stand and stare at their white male faces. You might have to... See, like, did they live with chronic pain and disease? Were they closeted gay people? Were they um, oppressed by uh, the Soviet regime, for example? Shostakovich and Prokofiev both worked in Soviet Russia. They had friends who were disappeared. Their lives were at risk every moment of their lives. If they said something in their music that the government didn't approve of, they could have been sent literally to Siberia or even just executed. And these are all people who had enough privilege for their music to make it into the mainstream, and now that it's here, you get to have it! Yeah. And the only reason you feel like you... What I think what you're saying is the only reason most of us walk around feeling like that's not for me, or like that's... Yeah, is because we've been told that explicitly by people who think that we don't deserve it. That we're not allowed. This is what Shostakovich has to say about that. shostakovich wrote that when his life was in danger from a government who was censoring him to the extent that they could have killed him if they didn't like his music can anybody relate and we are to not saying well gunner- at least you know with the horror show at least there's going to be some good art no it is not what we are saying here what we're saying is that ever since shostakovich died and his music entered the hallowed halls of classical music, it got shut behind the glass door to be protected from the rabble. And we're like, take it off the fucking shelf. You can handle this. This is for you if you're a person who has ever experienced anything in this realm. And I believe that once we have access to it, I mean, I think every classical musician will agree with me that once you have access and you find your way into the party, it's the best party. Like. I also listen to all kinds of other music, but when I have big feelings that I need somebody to tell me about, feel my feelings for me, I turn to fucking Brahms. Big feelings needs big music. Big music, yeah. And that big music belongs to everybody, not behind protective glass plate. Yeah, not in a museum. I, I want us all to feel ownership of the big feelings. So that we can increase big... access to joy because 2020 joy needs is what matters. everything it can get. Yeah. So there's a playlist on Spotify of just like deeply joyful music and almost all of the composers fall somewhere on the intersection of oppression in some point of their life. Uh, Were either a member of a non-dominant religious group or uh, were gay in a time when that was absolutely not acceptable or other intersections of oppression. Disability, chronic illness and pain, etc. Yeah.
1: And yeah, Yeah, they're all dudes because gatekeepers...
0: Because gatekeepers, are there also people of color and women who went through these things? Yes, there are, and there are playlists for that on Spotify too. And I encourage you to go find those. I'm that's going to become mainstream. I hope in the next ten to twenty years. I also do have a burnout playlist that's all women composers. You know what? I bet did not make your playlist. What? It's who likes pierogi? <laughs> it is on the playlist. <laughs> it is okay. I good. I put it in the playlist. <laughs> yes, I did. Yes, I did. I everything that got recommended to me, I put on the playlist. Yeah, and I put several recordings of some of them because some of them it's hilarious to hear the differences between the multiple recordings, um, and some of them there was a clear best recording, and that's what I chose. There's a lot of Leonard Bernstein on there. <laughs> it's the best recording because okay. I am a direct academic ancestor. What are we gonna What are we gonna uh, title this episode? Let's call it the Ode to Joy. Okay, how about Ode to Ode to Joy? Ode to Ode to Joy. <laughs> That's fun to say, too. Ode to to joy. Okay, wrap us up. And that's this episode of the Feminist Survival Project. If anything was written, and, like, I'm going to be honest, a lot of this actually, I did actually have to write some of this out. Anyway, it was written by me. And then Emily contributed with spontaneous actual smart things to say that didn't have to be prepared and to the extent that it was produced it was produced by emily's marital euphemism music was by me and all the white dudes with disabilities or religious oppression or political exile and you can follow the podcast on instagram or twitter at fsp 2020 and email us at feminist survival project 2020 at gmail.com and let me know if there are any pieces i should add to the playlist i hope this helped if it did and you find yourself wanting to have a conversation about it with the feminist in your life please share it And I hope you'll join us next week for another episode of the Feminist Survival Project 2020. Until then, thank you for listening. Oh, you nailed that. I wrote my dissertation on this. So yeah, yeah, I've thought this through. (laughs) The Feminist Survival Project 2020 is a part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find more podcasts you'll love at frolic.media podcasts.